I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, for our Old Testament scripture reading. I ask you to take particular note of verse 8, as this is a passage that Paul himself will cite in our sermon text this morning. If you've been paying attention, this is in fact the third or fourth time Paul has referenced uh, the servant songs of Isaiah uh, within, I believe, just this chapter alone of 2 Corinthians uh, 5 and 6. But here, Isaiah chapter 49, this is one of those servant songs that speak of the work of Christ and those bound up with Christ, with the work of redemption that Christ comes to bring. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and in the shadow of His hand He hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In His quiver He hid me away, and He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant, to bring Jacob back to Him, and that Israel might be gathered to Him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and God, my God, has been my strength. He says this, that it is too light a thing that you should be made my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. Note that Not just Israel, but the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because the Lord who is faithful the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and I will give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither shall scorching wind nor sun strike them, for He who has pity upon them will lead them, and by springs of water He will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road. My highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. Behold, these from the north and from the west and from the land of Syene. Sing for joy. O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people, and He will have compassion on His afflicted. Now turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, let's, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll begin reading in chapter 5, verse 16. Uh, our scripture text this morning is the first ten verses of chapter 6.
Paul writing to the church of Corinth, verse 16 of chapter 5, will begin, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Remember what he means by that. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to external uh, situation, circumstances, that criteria uh, that the world uses to judge worldly success. Even though we once regarded Christ according to these standards, according to the flesh, we regard him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is to say that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting unto us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Chapter 6. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says this, that in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. There, citing Isaiah chapter 49. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions and hardships. Calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, and kindness, the Holy Spirit and genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander, and through praise. We are treated as impostors, and yet we are true. We're treated as unknown, and yet we are well-known. We're treated as dying, and behold, we live. We're punished, and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. This is God's holy word. Let's go before him in prayer. Gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that this morning you would illuminate this passage, that we might be faithful to believe all that you've commanded to believe, and that we'd be faithful to do all that you've commanded us to do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what is it that makes for a commendable ministry? I don't know how many of you have ever had to undergo a job, a job interview recently. It's actually one of my fa- least favorite things uh, to do. I say this knowing that I had a job interview here uh, just a few months ago. And the problem, of course, is not with the people that you're interviewing with, either be it a boss or a group of people, as you candidate to come to a church. The, the problem with job, job interviews, in my own opinion, is you have to spend all your time tooting your own horn. Having to speak of your own accomplishments, I think it's awkward for most people, I think most sensible people, it's I think even more awkward for a minister. Um, I'm, I'm not a fan of 
talking about myself, at least in terms of my own uh, accomplishments. I'm, I'm rather a fan of self-deprecating humor. And so to show up and say, hey, why should we call you to be our pastor? Uh, it creates a certain awkward situation where you are, in fact, having to toot your own horn, something that really cuts the, against the grain of many personalities. I think the reason that many of us feel the sim- a similar way when we uh, go have undergone job interviews is that we, uh, again, don't like talking about ourselves uh, in that manner. We're not a big fan of boasting. And yet this is a, mass, a, a, a major pastoral concern that Paul is having to address with the church of Corinth. It's the problem of boasting. Here's a congregation that has no problem with boasting about themselves. No problem in boasting about their own accomplishments. Is, uh, if, if you've read 1 Corinthians lately, the, the whole thing that the Corinth is obsessed with is that of power and nobility, education and wisdom to know where people have gotten their, uh, their credentials from. And of course, they have judged according to these external criteria, these worldly standards of success that has uh, led to a number of factions and infighting within the church. It creates the perfect seedbed for false teachers to infiltrate and to make their way into a church that is grossly divided. Your super apostles have boasted in their own accomplishments according to worldly standards. They have infiltrated the ranks of the Corinthian congregation. And despite all of their worldly achievements of these false teachers, these guys who look like they check off every box that one should be looking for in a minister, the very message that these false teachers embody undermines the message of the cross. And Corinth has fallen for this hook, line, and sinker. And so it puts Paul in a rather awkward position as now Paul is forced to, sh- to, uh, to shine the spotlight on, spotlight on himself. Here he has to defend. He's not coming to defend his own personality, but rather he does have to come and defend his own ministry and talk about what it is that he has done. Here's Paul coming, basically having to do a second job interview with a church where he is already their pastor. An awkward situation. Here Paul has to toot his own horn and commend himself, and in doing so, do so for a purpose, to urge Corinth to repentance. I'm going to consider two particular things this morning in these first ten verses of chapter 6. First, we'll consider Paul's appeal. It's a short and simple appeal you'll see in verses 1 and 2. Then secondly, we'll consider Paul's commendation and try to understand why it is that Paul can commend himself when this seems to be the very thing that Paul is criticizing Corinth themselves as having done. So two things, the appeal in verses 1 and 2 and the commendation in verses 3 to 10. Well, as you know now, for several chapters, Paul has been having to defend his ministry. Paul has told us now that the age of the Spirit has come. The dawning of the new creation has come through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the benefits of the new creation are given and showered on the people of God through the proclamation of this good news. It is a gospel that supersedes the age of Moses. One that, as glorious as Moses' ministry was, 
in comparison with the glory of the new covenant, now makes the Mosaic order look like a ministry of condemnation and death. So great, so glorious is this ministry that Paul has been given. Paul himself is a minister of this better covenant. And yet these super apostles want to keep Corinth enslaved under the law. We'll see this as we make our way deeper and deeper into this letter. Super apostles who are allowing ministerial success and commendable ministries to be defined by those outward forms of success, by charisma and birth and wisdom and education. And yet, as Paul has striven, has strived to make very clear, ministerial success is marked not by those outward external criteria of worldly success, but rather it's marked by the changed hearts of the members of the congregation. The moral renovation of the heart because the Spirit has now been poured into our hearts, demonstrating that we've been made part of the new creation. We've been regenerated by the Spirit's power. We've been reconciled to God. We have been justified. Christ's righteousness imputed to us and received by faith alone. And though we have not yet seen it, we're given the great future hope of a bodily resurrection. So what we have before us are two wildly different ministries. Paul on the one hand and the false teachers, the flashy teachers, What we need to see before us this morning is that this is not a matter of personality differences. Paul is not writing because he's frustrated because he's bow-legged and bald, and now they've you know accepted uh, you know a minister with with wonderful flowing hair and great charisma and charm. Paul is not here to boost his own ego. That's not what we see going on here. That's why we we began reading uh, again in chapter 5. How is it, in terms of Paul's message, that he has been delivered? How is it that God reconciles the world? Chapter 5, verse 20 is very simple. God reconciles the world through Christ. And how is that reconciliation applied? It's applied through ambassadors of Christ. Those who proclaim Christ. That is the only way in which salvation is to be found. And Paul has had to say, I am an ambassador pleading with you. Saying that it's not simply myself pleading. 2 Corinthians 5.20 It is in fact God preaching to you and urging to you to be reconciled to God. We urge you on behalf of God what the task of an ambassador is. And what we see is Corinth has rejected Paul's message in favor of something a little bit more superficial, something a little bit more flashy, something that would draw in greater numbers, one that has a message that has been recalibrated according to worldly standards of wealth and honor, of notoriety and worldly fanfare and fame. A message that allows one to boast in their own accomplishments. I want you to notice that the logic of what Paul is saying here and what he's moving towards in this letter, that if Paul's message is in fact God's message, then to reject Paul is in fact to reject God himself. And Corinth stands on the very cusp of doing just that. That's why Paul says here in verse 1 of chapter 6, we are co-laborers with God. We are working together with Him. 
God Himself, Paul is in essence saying, you reject our ministry. You have rejected God. In, in lieu of what? Of a different message. And what we see here then is this is not Paul on an ego trip. This is Paul acting as God's spokesman. And so, so Paul is making this appeal as God's co-labor, do not receive the grace of God in vain. You've already received it initially from me. Don't toss it in the garbage for something else. If you reject my ministry, Paul says, you stand on the brink of apostasy. Themes that are filled out even greater in his letter to the church of Galatia who embarks on a very similar trajectory. Consider all the benefits that are bound up in receiving the good news that Paul proclaims week in and week out. New life, both spiritual regeneration and bodily resurrection. The great benefit of reconciliation and communion with Christ. The great news of justification, not simply that our sins are pardoned, but now that when God looks upon us, He sees us as He sees Christ Himself. Fully righteous. Not on account of our works, but on account of Christ's work at the cross. On account of His obedience unto death. Even the death on a cross whereby Christ's obedience is now reckoned as our obedience. Paul says, don't let this glorious salvation pass you by. Don't exchange it for lesser things. Now, Paul cites rather curiously Isaiah chapter 49. We have to ask ourselves, why is he doing this? If you've noticed over the past few weeks, Paul has been really steeped in the book of Isaiah. If you want to understand 2 Corinthians, you really need to understand what's going on in the book of Isaiah because Paul keeps repeatedly referring and referencing those servant songs of Isaiah. Chapter 5, verse 17, that the new creation ends, uh, brings an end to the exile through the work of the servant. That's what we saw just a few weeks ago. That's Isaiah chapter 43. And then last week when we looked at uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that redemption comes through the suffering of the servant. It's the very thing that we saw in Isaiah 53. And now he cites Isaiah 49, yet another servant song, a third servant song, and just there's something as short as a few verses. Where the Lord says, God says He has formed and fashioned His servant for a task. Not just for the salvation of Israel, but that salvation would extend to the Gentiles. Remember, Corinth is Paul's initial church plant among the Gentiles. Acts chapter 18. That here we are seeing the dawning of the fulfillment of the promises of God through the work of the servant. Through Christ and now all who are bound in Christ. Continue what Christ has commanded to do on earth to go out and proclaim this good news of redemption. And what we see here, what Paul is saying, is that that promised salvation that was hoped for in Isaiah is not simply a future promise waiting to be fulfilled because now Christ has come and so now that salvation has come. Just as Paul quotes Isaiah 49, in a day of salvation I have helped you. But now how is it that Paul uh, elaborates on that passage? What? Now is the day. 
The time has finally come. The great dawning of the new creation has arrived. Everything that we've longed and hoped for, it has begun. Because Christ being raised and ascended on high has poured out His Spirit so that salvation has begun its work. It is here and now you, Corinth, you're on the verge of throwing it all away. Because you have rejected God's messenger. And in doing so, you have, got, you have rejected God's message. You traded it for something that looks slick but it is something that ends in damnation. So here, it's like a man looking for new employment. Paul has to do the awkward. He now comes in for a job interview, so to speak, for a job he already has. He begins to toot his own horn here in verses 3 to 10 as he now begins to commend himself, telling them, trying to convince them to pick him as being the right man for the job and to reject these false teachers. Um, it's really been beautiful the past few weeks uh, being out here in Oregon. It's my first time in Oregon in the spring and seeing everything blossom like the, the cherry blossoms. Uh, that's something back home I, I never would have seen for us to see the cherry blossoms. Uh, spring like that, you'd have to go up to D.C. at a certain time. So j- just seeing them, just driving you know, on my way to, you know, to, to Subway or McDonald's or Chipotle during the week has been just really, really beautiful. And just seeing everybody out beginning to do the work of gardening. I mean, this is a really a beautiful um, part of God's, uh, God's world and God's creation. And, um, you know, I've tried gardening before and I've failed miserably at it. I don't know how you feel uh, about gardening. Um, you know, you, you do everything you can to try to make a plant grow. You have the soil, the water, the sunshine. You do everything you can. And then there are just sometimes, it just so happens, the plant doesn't bear fruit, despite all that you've tried to do, it still ends in failure. Paul says, I'm like a gardener. I've done everything that I could. There's nothing that I've, Paul says, in looking back on his ministry, nothing that I would have done different. I've done everything I could. And yet, where's the fruit? Is there going to be fruit? Here in verses 3 and 4 form the centerpiece of our passage this morning. And if you look with me there, he says, well, he says, we've put no obstacle in anybody's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. So if anybody's offended by our ministry, it's not because of us. It's because of the foolishness of the cross, the message of the cross itself. And because of this, Paul says, as servants of God, again, using that language of Isaiah, the servant of the Lord, we commend ourselves in every way. In other words, what Paul is now beginning to say is if the word is getting choked out of your life, if there's no fruit being born, Paul's now making a really awkward statement. One that he has to say goes, it's not my fault. Though you, Corinth, continually criticize my ministry, my ministry is faultless. So that with all simplicity and sincerity, I can commend myself as God's servant to you in every way. And now in verses 4 to 10, Paul begins to spell out what he means by every way. Long and short, when he says every way, 
doesn't mean most ways. It means every way. Paul lists the ways in which his ministry has proven itself to be impeccable. Not the variety of ways. First, he talks about the, the painful external circumstances that he has undergone as he has ministered to this high-maintenance congregation, be it generally by great endurance and affliction, hardship and calamity, be it by other more specific things. As he goes into greater detail in chapter 11, which we'll get there you know, several months from now, we'll get to chapter 11, I hope. But through the beatings and the imprisonments and the riots, Paul's ministry has been proven to be impeccable, though he himself has been charged with various crimes. Though here is a minister with a jail uh, record, a, a prison record. Yet here is a man who has been impeccable in his ministry and dealings through many dangers, toils, and snares that he has undergone willingly through labors, through sleepless night, through hunger, those labors being fatigued-induced, those sleepless nights spent so often in prayer. The burdens that he feels, remember as he's talked already about uh, in, in earlier uh, in this letter, how he left a golden opportunity in I believe it was Troas, because he just couldn't stop thinking about what was going on here in Corinth. All the hunger, perhaps the fasting, might be meant by what he means by hunger. But in other words, these self-imposed afflictions. Paul has not treated the ministry like an eight-to-five job. Somebody you know stops by the church office at five o five and goes, "Up, oh, sorry, I've clocked out." Here's a man who has lost sleep. Here is a man whose whole life is devoted to the ministry, and in particular devoted to this congregation. And Paul's response has been exemplary, even in the midst of the most deplorable of conditions. When confronted, we see the manner of Paul's response by purity, responding knowledgeably with patience and kindness. In need of the Holy Spirit, with genuine love, with truthful speech, and the power of God, with, as he says, the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, knowing that he is engaging in a spiritual battle for the minds and hearts of this congregation. And he has refused to resort to unrighteous means to win over their affections. In other words, whatever the circumstances be it through honor or dishonor, even though he's being slandered by so many people, even praised by some, doesn't matter. The mission remains the mission. Paul says here, I've been treated as an imposter, yet we are true. It doesn't matter what other people say. I'm commending myself to you. What more can I have done to prove myself to you? Such a painful situation that Paul admits that the outer man has been beaten to a pulp, though the Spirit continues to support him. He has that great end-time possession of the Spirit who supports him in all of his weaknesses so that he might be discouraged. He, however, is not completely left to total despair. He's treated as a nobody, verse 9, as an unknown, and yet he is well-known. People treating him like they don't even know him. He's dying, and yet, ta-da, still alive. 
punished, and yet he's not killed. A sorrowful, yet he's always rejoicing in the midst of these troubles. Doesn't have a penny to his name, it seems. And yet he says he possesses everything. Because he possesses Christ himself. Something where even the sufferings of Christ are of greater value than the treasures and fleeting pleasures of all that this world has to offer. Paul, in a radical understatement, is saying, I've been over backwards to woo your affections, and yet you're flirting with a high school quarterback. There's a certain irony here. We see that Paul is criticizing Corinth for boasting and for self-commendation. It is a, uh, a congregational uh, a sin that runs rampant through the host of this particular congregation, this of Corinth. And Paul criticizes for that, for them for that over and over, and yet now he is so clearly commending himself. We see here in verse 4, I'm commending ourselves. What gives? Has Paul become a hypocrite uh, in the process of defending himself? Has Paul uh, you know, lost the plot as he tossed his compass overboard and is now engaging in the same ploy and tactics as the congregation around him? I don't think he is. If you've ever gone camping, you know the key to it. going camping is to have somebody who knows how to camp, I guess, with you. Um, but you also probably need a good flashlight. What's the purpose of a flashlight? Flashlights, the purpose of a flashlight is to point beyond itself. I don't get a flashlight and then shine it on another flashlight and go, hey, look how good this flashlight is. The purpose of the flashlight is to point beyond itself. This is what Paul is trying to talk about with respect to the ministry. What is an, a, a commendable flashlight in the work of the ministry? What is a minister supposed to do? Is he supposed to shine the spotlight on himself? It's not his point. It's not what the minister is supposed to do. Rather, the job of the minister is to shine the spotlight on the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we have these super apostles shining the light on themselves, boasting in their own accomplishments. And Paul going, what are you doing? What Paul is doing here, Paul's not saying, look at me. Look how great I am. Paul is saying, look to where I am pointing. He keeps directing the congregation back to the cross. The message of reconciliation. That's why we can't read chapter 6 apart from chapter 5. That Paul is pleading with them not to receive the grace of God in vain. This message of the cross. Paul says, I'm a fully functional flashlight, as it were. I'm pointing in the right direction. And if you've picked up a flashlight that keeps pointing to itself, it's going to get you nowhere in the darkness. Paul's that man at the job interview. He's being forced to toot his own horde so he can actually do the job that he's already been called to do. How awkward a situation is this for Paul? And yet, in the midst of all this, this reminds us of a practical principle that applies even to the church today. What is it that constitutes a commendable ministry? Is the minister here to shine the spotlight on himself? Or is his purpose to point you to Christ? Are you here to be enthralled by the preacher's charm or dad jokes? Are you here to be captivated by something else? 
Are you here to be captivated by the cross? Those are two very different messages. And so it's true for Corinth, it's now true for us. That, that, that exhortation, do not receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, do not close your heart to the true preaching of the gospel. Don't exchange it for something flashier. Don't swap it out for false teaching that would tickle your ears. Don't trade it in for something that allows you to boast in yourself rather than in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's somebody who's trying to get you to compromise your faith, to boast in those things, you need to extricate yourself from that relationship. That's the very applicatory principle Paul's going to be driving as we come to the end of chapter 6 over the next few weeks. That above all, we must pursue holiness and let nothing get in the way that, that tries to separate us from our Savior. Here we are given the great news that we are made partakers of this glorious covenant by faith and faith alone. And the great news is that now we don't have to be... Uh, 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 we don't have to bo- try to boast in our co- accomplishments. We don't have to pretend like uh, you know, we're, we're overcompensating for something. Because none is worthy. That's what the cross teaches. It's a double-edged sword. None is worthy on account of our sin, but also none is worthy because our, our own good works aren't good enough. So often we treat God's standard as... Um, like one of those, you must be this tall to ride the ride signs you see at a theme park. You look at all, down at all those shorter than yourself going, ah, you're too short, you can't ride the ride, but ah, I've made it above the standard. When in reality, all we've done is we've taken the standard of God's law and we've lowered it just enough to make us feel comfortable where we can look down on everyone else around us. But the whole purpose of the law is that it exposes our sin and it tells us one thing and one thing alone. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so the only hope that we have for deliverance from the wrath to come is the cross of Christ. And it's that message that we are to cling to and not exchange for all the riches and philosophy that this world has to offer. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we do thank You for Christ and His work towards sinners. We ask that You would enlarge our hearts that we might love You more fully so that we can boast in Christ our victor who has triumphed over sin and death, Satan and hell, that we might enjoy friendship with God. Bless us, we pray, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.